People approach a far more serious kind of breakdown. We're going to talk about that today, a relational breakdown with not much more thoughtfulness than they do their automobile breakdown. They think that relationships are easy to come by and they throw them away with not much thought. But Jesus taught us to value our relationships. And he gave us instructions on how to repair broken relationships. He gave us the manual, the owner's manual. It's in the Bible. He tells us how we are supposed to repair and fix breakups and breakdowns. So let's find out what Jesus has to say about it today. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, he says, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the fault. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Now it can be summarized this way. If another person wrongs you, when there is conflict, and there will be, you go to the other person in private and you discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciliation. Now here's what the Message Bible says it in Matthew 18, 15. It says, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. If he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start all over from scratch and confront him with the need of repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Got to go all the way back to the beginning and start over again. Of all the teachings that Jesus ever gave us, this may be the one that we most often violate. Why is that? Because at every point in this teaching, we are faced with a decision. And we always have very powerful reasons to ignore his instructions and not go to our fellow believer. So let's walk through Jesus' words here today and let's find out with absolute clarity what is the process to go through whenever we have aught with our brother. First of all, we have to acknowledge the conflict. The first step is something you do in your mind. You acknowledge the conflict. Now, people are going to fight, sometimes constructively, sometimes destructively. Sometimes fights end in hugs and kisses. Sometimes they end in coldness and withdrawal. But first you have to acknowledge that another person does have a beef with you. In other words, they're not in harmony with you. All right? For a lot of reasons, it's easier to pretend that the conflict does not exist. But if you are alive, I want to tell you something, you're going to have conflict. You say, I've never had conflict. You will. <laughs> you will. Somewhere in your life, you're going to have conflict. The only place where there's no conflict is in the grave. You don't have to worry about it there. But if you're going to live in community and you're going to live in the presence of other people, it will require that you have a tenacious inner commitment to address conflict. However, I would like to add that I think conflict is one of the necessary ingredients that we have to experience in order to grow. Did you hear me? You see, pearls are made with a piece of sand that irritates the oyster. It irritates. The finish on beautiful furniture is created from many rubs of sandpaper. So let's go ahead and admit that conflict will be a natural part of life. 
And then we can make a deep commitment to face relational breakups and breakdowns squarely in the eye. How many of you here this morning will acknowledge that you have at some time experienced conflict in the church or in your personal life? Almost every one of you. So you have to acknowledge that. That's the first thing you have to do is acknowledge it. Then when you acknowledge it, secondly, you take the initiative to solve the problem. Jesus is clear about this next step. He said if there's a conflict, now you got to get this, he said, you go. He didn't say wait until they come to you. People get in conflict and the first words out of their mouths are something like this. They said something about me I didn't like. And it'll be a cold day in hell before I ever go to them. And if there's any making up to do, it's going to be on their part and not mine, right? But that's not what Jesus said. He said, you go. Now, maybe it would help us to remember this part if we thought about that little car called a Yugo. <laughs> that little Yugo is not the best looking car in the world, but it does get you from one place to another. It's great for transportation, right? So whenever conflict comes, remember this little say, the little car, you go. You take the initiative. But chances are you don't want to go, right? Instead, you want to say, let the other person come to me. Why do I always have to take the first step? Why can't they take the first step? Why do I always have to be the one? Why, why do they have to be so stubborn, mule-headed? Why, why, why? You ever had any of those thoughts? Well, Jesus knew you were going to have those kind of thoughts. So he said, he made it real clear. He said, quit worrying about what they're going to say and how they feel about the matter. He said, what? You go. Come on. The little car, remember? He said, you go. When anybody's hurt, if you're hurt or they're hurt or somebody's been wrong, don't wait for somebody to take the initiative. What? You go. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 5, 23. He said, this is how I want you to conduct, your, conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and you're about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. He said, abandon your offering. Leave immediately. How long are you supposed to wait? Not very long. He said, go immediately. Go to the friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. He said that you have to take an action. Don't wait for the other person to come to you and fix the problem. What are you supposed to do? You go. You go. You. <laughs> Amen. So once again, this, this is not something that's easy to do. I know it's not easy. It's easier to sit, stew, stay. Some people would just rather be mad, right? It's more fun to pout about it, wallow in self-pity, rehearse the ways in which the other person unfairly hurts you, I've heard people say things like, if I go, it might get ugly. If I go, it might be scary. <laughs> the truth is most, the truth of, most of us fear confrontation for one reason or another. We really don't want that confrontation. Now, I believe that it's more a fear of the unknown than anything else. Usually when you finally get up enough nerve to go and work things out, they usually work out pretty good. But the go step is a huge one. It's important to understand that you may not ever do it terribly well. You may stumble over all your words. Doesn't matter. Of course, it's important that you use as much skill and wisdom as you can, and it may be very helpful to plan ahead what you're going to say, but the main thing is what? You go. You go. <laughs> That's the main thing. The main thing is we go. Address the problem. Why? Why is that so important? 
Because if you let it stew, resentment has a way of building up inside you and it's kind of like buried toxic waste. If you let it stay there, sooner or later, it's going to leak. I remember when I was uh, working on my truck brokering job, there was a company down south called Agri Empire down by uh, uh, Bar uh, Barstow. And the farmers down there had, uh, when they, they got, would, got through with their chemicals in their, those 55-gallon drums, they would just dig a hole and put it down in the ground. But after a period of time, the, they begin to corrode and they begin to rust and they begin to release toxic fumes out of those barrels. And uh, they were growing potatoes up there on the top. And I hope you didn't get any of those potatoes because they started finding toxic waste in those, uh, the, the, whatever it was, got in those potatoes. So you see, if you just let resentment build up, that's what happens. It begins to corrode. It begins to rust. And it begins to cause all kinds of problems. Usually comes out in, in sicknesses and diseases and all kinds of problems start happening on the inside of you. It starts building up. So Jesus said that you've got to take care of it. Remember, resentment hurts not only the one that it's against, but probably hurts you more than anybody else. So the third thing to remember is to don't include third parties. No third parties. So who do you go to? Jesus said, you go to the person with whom you have the conflict. That's who you go to. You say, well, that seems obvious. But usually, that's the last person you want to go to. You want to go to somebody else. You want to go to a person who is not involved and say, I want to share with you my concerns about my brother in Christ, who is obviously a very di deeply disturbed psychopath. <laughs> It's more fun to go to somebody else because you can commiserate with them and get reinforcement for your anger. But the Bible says that's not the way to go. He says when you go to a third party and talk about someone that's not directly involved in the problem, you have really opened up a can of worms. Have you ever tried to get worms back in a can once you got them opened? It's almost impossible. They squirm, they wiggle, they crawl out. And once they hit the ground, they're gone. You'll never get them back. You say, how can you know that? I used to get those, remember I told you about the night crawlers? Man, you get those night crawlers out. If one of them gets away from you and it hits the ground, man, that night crawler will find the closest hole and whoop, he's gone. You never get that fellow back. That's kind of the way the words are. If you let those words get out there, it's hard to bring them back. Now, as time goes by, you may get your problem all fixed up with the original one that you had the conflict with, with in the beginning. But those words of defamation that you spoke to that third party, they're out there. And that third party may or may not know that you got things fixed up with the first party. Now those words are spreading like wildfire. James 3 and 5 says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a very small spark. Have you ever lit a few little pieces of kindling wood and set them in a fireplace beneath a stack of logs? What happened? Most likely the fire began to spread first to one log, then to another log, until finally it became a great big blaze. And after it was all over, you couldn't go digging around in the ashes. You couldn't find that kindling that you started the fire with if it killed you. You couldn't find it. Why? It all got burned up. No trace at all. Well, the tongue is like that. 
tongues like that. It first defies the body, the Bible said. Then it sets on fire the whole course of nature with a blaze that's so great that it leaves no uh, natural trace of its origin. The words that started, up, started it end up deeply buried in the ashes that you would never even know that they were there. So don't ever underestimate the power of your words. I can assure you Satan doesn't. He works constantly to get you to turn them in a negative direction. He'll fire darts of pain and sickness and discouragement and offense at you just to get you to speak faithless words, words that will eventually send, up, send your life up in smoke. In community, we all must be prepared to be approached by a person in conflict. Sooner or later, somebody is going to come to you to complain about somebody else. It often tickles your flesh to hear their complaints. You get excited. Oh, here it comes. In a way, it can even bond the two of you together. But it's not helping the situation. So you need to think in advance of a gracious, tactful way of encouraging the person not to air out their complaints to you, but to go to the one that's involved. I like what one brother said. He told me this. He said when people bring gossip to him, he says, do I look like a garbage can? Don't be so quick to lend a sympathetic ear, especially when the complaint is about another one of your brothers and sisters in the church, especially the pastor. <laughs> Somebody comes around and says, I sure love our pastor, don't you? Oh, yes, he's a wonderful pastor. But you better stop right there. <laughs> Cut it off right there. I've had people come to me and say, you know, Brother Stones, well, he's a pretty good guy, but and then they get ready to tell me about what this fellow's not good at. And I had this one fella come and he started talking about this other fella. And I just said, well, why don't we just go right over here and talk to him right now and get this thing straightened out? He said, oh, no, brother. No, no, I, I didn't want that. I, I, you know, he started backing up on me. But sometimes when somebody comes to you with these problems, maybe what they really feel is they need to pray for that person. Why don't you just say, well, why don't we just have a prayer meeting right now? Let's just pray for this brother because I can see you're really concerned about him and you really have a need to get this thing straightened out. Hallelujah. Stop it right there. Don't let it go any further. Now you need to get that settled in advance because somebody's going to come to you with a whole lot of gossip. So you need to be prepared what you're going to say when they come to you with that gossip. Now if you go to the person who has hurt you and you have thoughtfully and carefully confronted without good resolve, then and only then, Jesus says to involve a few other mature believers in the process. There's a time for other believers, but first, they need to try to get it worked out between themselves. He said in Matthew 18, 16, But if, if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the next step of reconciliation is direct communication. Jesus said to go when the two of you can be alone. This means you will have to avoid the temptation to embarrass the person in front of friends. Have you ever done that? Have you ever served up a well-placed jab in front of friends? How many has been jabbed a few times? <laughs> I've been jabbed. Man, it don't feel good. So be careful. Maybe sometimes it's done in humor. You know, somebody will say something just to be funny, but it don't feel good, does it? Be careful what you say. If you know something about somebody, Keep your mouth shut. Don't try to make a funny about them because <laughs> it ain't funny. Hallelujah. 
Jesus said to put aside any desire to embarrass the person. He said, go to them in private. Then Jesus says you are to discuss the problem. Talk about it. Engage in direct communication. Sometimes in an effort to soften the blow, we end up addressing the problem indirectly. You know, we talk around it. We avoid naming it. Sometimes we get manipulative and we put in the form of a question instead of a direct statement. For instance, you know, a wife says to her husband, wouldn't you like to get the garage cleaned up today? He reflects on the state of his heart and discovers that at the inner core of who he is, he really would not like to get the garage cleaned up today. So he tells her very proudly, in all my self-awareness and honesty, I do not feel the necessity to clean the garage today. <laughs> She's now twice as mad. <laughs> she should have just said, get out there and clean that garage today, right? <laughs> so you'll need to work hard to find constructive ways to talk directly about the conflict. This requires, and I call this, verbal discipline. Learn how to talk without getting mad. <laughs> Learn how to talk without bending it around to where you look good. You know, you have to learn to speak without sarcasm and sweeping statements, exaggerations, and emotionally charged words choices that pour gasoline on the fire. Verbally disciplined people are mindful of their own relational shortcomings. They know that they're not perfect. And so they speak truth and they speak it with humility and grace. So direct communication important. Thirdly, the only reason to go is for the purpose of reconciliation. The last thing Jesus says is truly imperative. He said we must do all the above for the purpose of reconciliation. What does that mean? To win back the other person. To restore community. If this is not your motive, it will corrupt the entire process. If this is not your purpose, then just simply don't go. Only go for the purpose of reconciliation. Sometimes the real aim of confrontation is not reconciliation, but sometimes it is to inflict more pain on the person that is in question. In this case, direct communication will very likely do more damage than good, perhaps even significant emotional damage. For example, people often pretend to want reconciliation when they are only using it as an excuse to throw more insults and jabs at the other person. That kind of confrontation is not what Jesus meant when he said to be reconciled. The aim should always be to repair and restore a broken relationship. However, after all I've said today, I must regrettably add this last bit of information, and that is pursuing biblical conflict resolution may not always result in the restoration of the fellowship. may not always work. Sometimes separation is needed with the hope that resolve may be possible at a later time. Sometimes you've done all you can do. You just have to let it go. But if you've worked through the conflict openly and lovingly and bravely, you'll have the satisfaction in your own heart that you've done everything that you can do. You will have the contentment of knowing that as far as it's up to you, you have pursued peace. And in doing this, here's what the Bible says in Romans 12 and 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. As much as possible, live at peace with everybody. Amen? Amen. Do not take revenge 
Do I need to say that again? Because you hear it all the time. I'll get even with them. It's the last thing I do. He said, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry. Now, who's he talking about? If you're what? If your enemy. He didn't say your friend, your family member. He didn't say that. He said, if your enemy is hungry, starve him to death. Is that what it says? No, he said, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Why is that? I won't get revenge that way. Yeah, you will. He said, because in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You'll kill him with kindness. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Psalms 133 and 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It takes unity to accomplish a great work for God, doesn't it? No one can whistle a symphony. Sympathy? No one can whistle a symphony. It takes an orchestra to play it. You can't applaud with one hand, can you? And if you see a turtle on a stump, you know he didn't get there by himself. He had some help. We have to have unity. We'll never become a church that effectively reaches out to those who are missing out if we shoot our wounded and we major on the minuses. Instead of being fishers of men, as Christ has called us, we will be keepers of an ever-shrinking aquarium. My wife and I have walked in Woodward Park in the fall, and the most beautiful sight is to see geese heading south for the winter. I don't know if you ever saw them, but they fly in a V formation. You might be interested in knowing what science has discovered about uh, these geese and how they fly and why they fly that way. It has been learned that as each bird flaps its wing, it creates an uplift for the bird immediately following. And by flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds at least 70% greater flying range than if each bird flew on its own. So Christians who share a common direction and a sense of community can get where they're going quicker and easier than if they try to fly alone because they're traveling on the thrust of one another. Hallelujah. So, so I can live for God by myself. Well, you might be able to, but it's a whole lot easier when you fly in formation. When you come to the house of God and you let other people get involved in helping you in your, in your walk for Christ. Amen. Now, whenever a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and the resistance of trying to do it alone. And quickly it gets back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front. If we have as much sense as a goose, we'll stay in formation with those who are headed the same way as we are going. But too many people have cooked their goose with gossip. When the lead goose gets tired, he rotates back in the wing and another goose moves up and flies point. It pays to take turns doing hard jobs like cleaning the church. With people at church, <laughs> just like the geese that fly south. Hallelujah. The geese behind the lead bird, they are always honking encouragement. 
They're always telling him, keep up the good speed. Keep up the good work, buddy. I wonder what you're honking. <laughs> Finally, when a goose gets sick or is wounded by a shot and falls out, two geese will fall out of formation and follow him down to help and protect him. And they stay with him until he's either able to fly or until he's dead. And then they launch out on their own or they find another formation to catch up with in order to fly again in the V formation. And I believe today if people really knew that we stood together as a church, as a family, as a community, they'd be pushing down those walls to get in here. They'd want that. They'd want family. You see, all we have to do in order to attract those who are missing back to church is to demonstrate to the world that we have as much sense as geese here at church. <laughs> that seems little enough price to pay to win the lost and minister to one another. Even geese have enough sense to know that it works to fly in unity. Amen. Several years ago in England, Sir John Barbaroli was conducting a great symphony orchestra before a standing room only audience. The concert hall was unusual in that it was used for cultural events on weekdays and for religious services on Sunday. On this particular Saturday evening, one of the patrons of the orchestra noticed that the clergyman was there was to preach the next day to that audience. And he learned, leaned over and he said to him very cynically, when are you going to fill this hall on Sunday the way that Sir John Barbarelli has tonight? The clergyman looked over at the antagonist straight in the eye and he said with a very steady voice, I will fill this hall on Sunday morning when you give to me, as you have gave to Sir John tonight, 85 disciplined men and women to be with him and to work with him. When I get the kind of cooperation that this symphony is given this man, we are going to have a church. Yes. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. I've often thought that same thing. I see thousands of people filling football stadiums in various towns across this country. And I wonder how in the world do we get our churches filled the way they fill these stadiums? So I started thinking about it. You know, what do they do? These people, they pay, you know, it's not, when you really think about it, it seems kind of ridiculous, but they pay big money. They endure the headaches of traffic jams. They sit in little cramped chairs for three to four hours, and they're bombarded with sound that in church people will quit coming because of. Why do they do that? What's it all about? I'll tell you why. Because they're excited about the drama of the game. They're excited about who's going to win. They love to eat while the players exercise. <laughs> and of course they love just being a part of the crowd, right? So what does that tell us about people? It's all about attitude. It's about attitude. If we could get people to come to church like they go to the football game, we would have standing room only in the house of God. Why is that? Because when you come to church, you ought to come with the right attitude. You ought to come with the attitude that I'm going to get excited about the unpredictable moving of the Holy Spirit in the worship service. There's no telling what's going to happen when God's people unify and they start getting in one mind and one accord and start worshiping from the depths of their heart and from their innermost being there rolls out the glory of God out of their mouth as they praise and worship Him. Hallelujah! That's unity. And then they get excited because they're going to go to the house of the Lord and they're going to eat they're going to devour the Word of God. They're going to have donuts, but they're going to have something better than donuts. They're going to have the Word of God. Hallelujah. And the Bible says we need to have a love for the truth. 
and the love for the truth. If we have that, that's the thing that's going to keep us from the sinful man in the end time is having a love for the truth. Every time you come to the house of God, you ought to have a hunger in your heart to eat the good word of God. And then finally, to enjoy fellowship with your other brothers and sisters. We ought to enjoy, we ought to desire that so much that if we have aught with our brother, we take care of that before the service starts so that we can have a great service of unity and binding together. The reason they go to these ball games is because one of the reasons they just want to be with the crowd. Hallelujah. Don't you love to come to the house of the Lord and be with the crowd? Be with your other brothers and sisters? One man said, 10 men, 10 men banded together in love and unity can do what 10,000 separately would fail to do. Galatians 5.14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, listen to it, if you bite and devour one another, if you're a bunch of dogs and you're always trying to eat everybody up, if you bite and devour, that's what I see as dogs. If you're just a bunch of dogs, we're not going to get anywhere. Unless you're a good dog like your dog, you know. <laughs> Some of you got good dogs, but, you know, we're talking about pit bulls. If you bite and devour one another, he said, beware lest you be consumed by one another. The church will fall apart. If we don't try to keep unity, if you don't, we don't try to keep unity in the house of God, we'll fall apart. And unity will come whenever we do what Jesus said to do. When you have a problem with your brother, what do you do? Come on, you go. The little car, remember, you go. If you don't get anything else out of this message, remember, when you have a problem, what? You go. You go to your brother in private, and you, you get things straightened up between the two of you. And if he won't listen to you, well, then go, you know, you might have to get the pastor to come and help you. Two of you go in private and work it out. Because we got to get it straight. Why do we have to get it straight? Because we want to have unity in the house of God. And when we are united, there is no telling what can be accomplished for the cause of God. There's no telling. This thing can explode and we can have just the power of God here in such a fantastic way. Every time we come to this house, people can be healed. People can be saved. Things can happen around here. Unified in worship. Unified in everything we do here. Amen. Shall we stand? Praise the Lord. We're going to do something a little different today for the altar call. This is a different kind of sermon, but uh, I really felt led of the Lord to preach this today. And uh, what I want us to do, if anybody here has ever had conflict... Hey, we want you to come to the altar today. If you've ever had a conflict with anybody, even if you got it straightened up or you don't have it straightened up, whatever, if you've ever had conflict, here they come. <laughs> it ought to be everybody. Everybody that's ever had a problem with somebody, I want you to come forward. Praise the Lord. I thought today might be a way to get 100% in the altar. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. What we're going to do today is, like I said, just a little bit different. Normally, we would have probably an altar call here for sinners, but today we're going to all be the sinners. And uh, you folks want to come forward too? You know, I, I don't know. If you haven't had any, you'll probably have some in the future. <laughs> it's coming. Praise the Lord. 
I love you guys. I love every one of you. I don't have any conflicts with anybody here, I don't think. If I do, please come tell me because I'm not aware of it. The only reason I haven't come to you is because I didn't know about it, okay? But I want, I want us just to get each other's hands, and I want us to pray. And we're going to pray for each other. And we're going to ask the Lord, and if there's a problem, that we'll take care of it right now. Because I want this church to be unified and banded together because I think God's getting ready to do a great work. One brother came to me and he said, this church is pregnant for an explosion of the power of God. And I receive it in Jesus' name. Somebody else told me that God uh, spoke to them and said, he's getting ready to do a great work in the church. He wants you to go deeper because the church is getting ready to really explode. I said, I receive it. You know, I'm getting this from everybody. And so we're getting ready to, something's getting ready to happen around here. So we got to know that if we have problems among ourselves, the devil will always try to come in and destroy what God is building. So we're going to have to be prepared. If we got a problem between us, take care of it immediately, get it taken care of and cast it out before it can ever grow into a forest fire, okay? So let's pray right now for one another. Let's pray, God, in your name we come to you and we believe. Lord, that you're going to help us, oh God, to be successful as a church, Lord, that we might from this day forward, God, if we have any problems among ourselves, Lord, that we might be able to stand firm and be able to take care of them, oh God. But we receive, Lord, the outpouring of your spirit upon this church and what you're getting ready to do here, oh God. What a great and mighty God that we serve. And we thank you, Lord, that you have loved us, oh God, and given your life for us. We believe today, oh God, that if there's anybody here today that has a problem, Lord, God, that they would take care of, that they would straighten it up. Lord, that there might be a free flow of the Holy Spirit of God in this place. We thank you for it, Lord, in your holy name. You're such a good God, and we receive it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So let's build a community of Christians that are totally devoted to God and to each other. What do you say? Amen. How many of you here today will admit that you've had problems before? But how many will say, with the Lord's help, I will now know how to handle it. I'll know now how to handle it. It's in the Word of God. Sometimes we forget it's in there. God said, you better tell them again. They, I think they've forgotten. <laughs> Hallelujah. So that's why we preach this today, and uh, I hope it will help us to grow in the Lord. Amen. We appreciate you so much. I hope you received something from the Word of the Lord worship today. God just bless you now and shake hands and be friendly. You're dismissed. God bless you. Thank